Hey, welcome to Night School. A podcast a day keeps the doctor at bay, keeps him away. You know what you got to do? You're doing too many podcasts. You're doing a podcast like every day. If you want to be successful, you got you to stretch them out. Do a podcast a week. Stretch it out. Make them want it. Make them want more. What you got to do is you got to make them want more. You got to do one a week. Here's what you got to do. No, here's what you got to do. Everyone knows what you got to do. You got to make them want more. Leave them wanting more. Now, what you got to do is you got to put a, a rock in a bag with a card that has your website address on it and you know throw it in their email inbox. Make them want it. You got to make them want it. No. No. Overload them. Overload them. Overfl- over- overflow them. Overflood them. Make them wait for that flood. This is a great podcast to listen to if you're waiting for a flood. And uh, who who isn't? Who isn't waiting for a flood? But you got to make them want it, man. You got to use these clever marketing techniques. You got to sell it. You got you to learn how to sell yourself. Something I think about quite often is, uh, you know, what it means to take action. And uh, there was a friend I met when I was in my late teens, met him through, you know, some weird music, let's just say, and his whole thing was always, some might have called him a performance artist, which is just an awful term for anybody. Uh, but some some might have called him a performance artist, sort of an anti-art, anti-music sort of guy, which goes in line with all my anti-music talk lately all my bitter and jaded rants about music and musicians, but this is somebody who was clearly making some kind of protest, and you end up in that weird irony or that weird paradox, because it's more of a paradox of, you know, oh, well, you're standing against this thing by participating in it, which we all fall into. You know, even by voicing our dissent, we're participating in the process and sometimes you can't escape it, but sometimes it's very voluntary. And this person, this friend of mine, it was very voluntary, but, uh, you know, we never saw eye to eye about art or music or anything, and our friendship wasn't based on that. And back then, I was young, and my values were very much focused on one, just I didn't even know I was trying to figure anything out, uh, but I was, you know, trying to figure shit out. I just didn't know exactly how I was doing that or what that would look like. Uh, but at the time, my values were very much like, oh, you know, like music and art and creativity are, are the the best thing. Everything is wrapped up in those things, you know, and th- those are my priorities. I want to get better at doing this or, you know, I want to do that. And this person, you know, like I said, our friendship was not based on that in any way whatsoever. And there's way too much to say that I I couldn't possibly go into here. But something he would always say, even back then, and at the time I was kind of insecure about it when when he would say things like this, but it was like, you know, none of these people, he would point out, none of these people are taking action in any way. And, you know, they, they aren't actually doing anything. They're not men of action, would be actually what he would say. And, you know, sure, it sounds over the top to put it that way 
but I, it stuck in my head because it, it made me feel this sense of guilt. I mean, it's sort of like with the preach what you need thing. Like when someone is just saying, when someone is just giving their own opinion about their own experience, we have this tendency to feel really insecure if we don't match up with that. It's almost like how when you're talking to somebody, if two people are talking, they start to mimic each other's speech patterns. We do this harmonization uh, with each other, and it, it goes down to speech. You know, you start to mimic the rhythms of the the person's speech who you're talking to, and obviously the more dominant person will win out. The more influential person will win out, even in a one-on-one conversation. Uh, but we tend to do that. We tend to try to find this harmony. And it's one reason why I think people are so scared of dangerous speakers and dangerous ideas, because there is a human tendency to try to harmonize with what we are hearing, especially if it's in any way attractive to us. But the right answer is also not to shut it down or censor. And I did a whole episode about that last week or two weeks ago, and I don't want to, I don't want to just say everything I said there because I feel like that summed it up. Uh, but th- going back to this friend, he would say things like that, you know, like you got to take action, and it sounds uh, very severe. You have to take action. And what does that even mean? I didn't know what it meant then, but it almost felt accusatory because I think that's the thing. When someone is just voicing their own critical thoughts about some aspect of life, especially if it comes from within, if it comes from their own experience and their own observations, even if it isn't directed at you, it's very easy to feel insecure about it if you aren't harmonized with it. And so talking to this friend, even though he was kind of, you know, this kind of nasty guy, honestly, kind of like a not exactly someone you would want to mimic if you wanted to live a respectable life. And I say this with a lot of love, and this was then too. Uh, Circumstances change. My perception of this person, this person has changed somewhat. But it was just at the time, it was just like, oh man, like I had this sense of guilt where I was almost like, you know, I really don't feel like I'm taking much action. But at the time I was like, what, 19 years old, 18, 19. And uh, as a result, uh, you know, I just kept doing what I was doing, stayed in touch with this friend over the years on and off. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to say that he was this sole influence as far as, uh, taking action in one's life goes or taking action in my own life or trying to contend with that idea. I think that's what it comes down to is trying to contend with the idea of taking action, but just going about my life, both, you know, the aspects of my life that are normal, as well as the aspects of my life that are strange or, or, you know, somehow it doesn't really matter. The different, you know, let's go back to LARPing, like the different ways in which you LARP, the different ways in which you, you do certain things and you have, to, you have to, you know, wear certain masks, obviously, in different avenues of your life. But something I've always been aware of. And maybe a seed was planted back then. I don't know. Maybe it's just something that I would have, maybe it's a conclusion that I would have come to on my own too. Not not really a conclusion, but some sort of feeling, just some sort of sense uh, is, you know, I've always noticed where action isn't being taken and responsibility is a large part of that action, you know, in order to actually take action, you have to first take some level of responsibility. And that can mean all kinds of things. And I've talked about how, you know, someone who is a hero, and we see a hero, I mean, there's a reason why action hero is a 
phrase. I don't hear it much anymore, but that, there's a movie called Last Action Hero. Uh, but, you know, an action hero is a thing because a, a hero is a person of action. In every story that involves a hero, the hero is a person of action. What makes Beowulf Beowulf is that he is a man of action. Nobody else is taking action against Grendel in the story of Beowulf. But Beowulf first takes action by coming to Denmark and then takes further action by laying in wait for Grendel. And that's a story of, of continual action. You know, Beowulf is continually taking action, and that's what makes him Beowulf. That's what makes him the hero of the story. That's what makes him... Uh, a core archetypical archetypal archetypical typal uh, hero today and apparently then too. I mean, we're talking, you know, over a thousand years ago. Uh, there's a re- and there's a reason why people are still inspired reading Beowulf, and I recommend reading Beowulf if you haven't. Doesn't matter what tran- what translation, what version of the Bible you read, and what translation of Beowulf. It doesn't matter. Just read it. Um, the translation I've read is the description of evil is so, so good. I've never, you know, Grendel as a representation of evil, I've never read such a, just a, a gripping description of evil. People have tried to describe evil and evil characters, and I don't think anything truly matches the descriptions of Grendel crawling out of his watery abyss into the hall. You know, I don't think anything matches that. It's It's just... It's gruesome, and he doesn't even describe what whoever wrote it. And that's the great thing about it. It's a mystery author. Mystery author wrote it. Do you like mystery author? Do you like the mysterious Anglo-Saxon mystery author? Mystery Arthur? Uh, but, you know, that description of, of Grendel, it just it's unmatched, in my opinion, as far as, like, what evil is. And you never even get a real physical description of Grendel. It's very loose, and that's what makes it what it is, this loose description of evil. It's very descriptive, uh, but you never actually get a full picture of what he is. Uh, But, you know, going back to the good guy, we're talking about good guys. We're talking about action. I mean, evil is action, too, because that's something you have to contend with, is sometimes by taking action. I mean, these guys, these fucking nightmare school shooters think they are taking action, and they are, so it's not like action is necessarily a good thing. But one thing you see in every story of heroism is them taking action, and them having an opportunity to take action when it presents itself, because that's what taking responsibility is. It's all, take, when you take responsibility for everything uh, around you, and you know, I, I talked in an episode about this uh, famous famous first words, famous first and last words. I talked in another episode. Uh, uh, but, you know, when you take responsibility for the fact that you do have a relationship to everything you come in contact with, good and bad or otherwise, you know, what that means is in having a relationship to everything around you, wherever you are, you are opening up the opportunity to take action when the need or or just that opportunity presents itself. And that's what Beowulf does. Because he, while he takes some kind of action in, you know, sailing over to Denmark and, you know, sleeping in that hall, and there's a bunch of other stuff he does that's heroic, 
A lot of what he does is when the opportunity presents itself, it's not staged, it's not scripted. A lot of it is just being in the right position to react, having the opportunity to react. And look at that word, react. It's a word of action. It's in there, act. Blowing your mind. Words within words. Uh, but in my own life, you know, that idea of having that seed planted in my head many years ago of like taking action, and I just put it out of my head at the time because when you're too insecure or just not in the right place to really let an idea, you know, when, when you're not ready for that epiphany to, to blow up in your mind, you just kind of push it away and shut it down. Or you, you either dismiss the idea entirely like, what does that mean, taking action? Who takes action? Did you get this record? The action I like is, is have, you, have you gotten the, the first edition of this album? Oh, is this the first? Oh, is this the first pressing? Uh, you know, oh, did you, did you watch uh, this episode? You know, it's just, you know, some people that is taking some kind of action. You know, it's, it's the sort of action they look forward to. It's the action that they think will get them something they want. It's kind of a material action, whatever it is. Nothing wrong with that. But it's very easy to shut down this higher ideal. It's like, shut this higher ideal out of your life because it's just, it's either not relevant. It's like, hey, we're living in 2005. Hey, it's 2004. Who who cares about being a man of action? What does that mean? Uh, but it's something that I've contended with. And I think that idea is something you will always contend with because you're not Beowulf. There's not just a ship to take. You can't just be like, I'm going to take a ship overseas and fight some vague but highly descriptive essence of evil. You know, you can't just do that. And if you do do that, you probably are like a school shooter or like a uh, or a protester or somebody who thinks that there is this very direct way that you can become a hero or participate in some sort of heroic action. And I don't think there's, I don't know, let's get into protesting, because I think that's a way that a lot of people see themselves taking action. By going to a protest, a staged protest, by holding a sign. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not God. I can't say that it has no impact on these people's goals. But it does look like LARPing to me. It does look like an anime convention to me. And I do question the true impact that it has. And maybe it makes someone feel better. And I'm not saying protests throughout history have had no meaning. I'm not saying riots have had no meaning. You look at what's going on in Hong Kong. And I don't have an opinion on that. I don't have an opinion on Hong Kong in the same way that I don't have a true opinion on Brexit. I'm not going to sit here and say, these people on the other side of the world, even though we're more connected than ever, I'm not going to sit here and say that these people on the other side of the world should do this. Or these people are right. Granted, if you look at the history of communist China, I think it speaks for itself why these people are rioting. But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lean too far into that opinion because I don't know. I, I just I hesitate to get into that. There's a lot that's good about globalism. I'm not gonna be one of these people who's like, you know, the globalist new world order. Because I think there's a lot that's really good about us being connected and aware and empathetic toward people in other parts of the world on a level that is was previously unknown as far as we know. I mean, you know, I know they had uh, the internet and computers and airships 10 million years ago uh, that have been, since been buried. 
and they all knew each other then too. <laughs> but uh, no, but really, uh, you know, I think there's so much that's actually good about that globalist thing, and the fact that you know, you know, you are, you know, the fact that we are able to communicate with people at the you know level we are around the world, and just the, the amount of knowledge we have. There's so much good in that. There's so much good to having that level of exposure and contact. Uh, but there's also this tendency to try start thinking that we know what's best for everybody and that we have to have opinions on everything. And that includes what people are doing in other countries around the world. And you saw that a lot with Brexit. You see it a lot with just attitudes toward modern Russia. And it currently is going on with Hong Kong, where you have people who are getting really mad at each other in the United States because they disagree over these Hong Kong protests and this and that. And, you know, while I do lean a certain way, as I said, I can't lean too far into it. But I also think that something like the Hong Kong protests, you know, maybe this is just my own biases, maybe this is my own distorted lens, whatever it is, but um, uh, I, I just, I see those riots much differently than I do the protests that go on in the U.S. and the riots that go on in the U.S., the occasional riot. It's the name of my punk band, Occasional Riot. I don't know, it's kind of like a quiet, it's kind of like a quiet riot sounding band name. It's not original. That's why you don't, that's why you don't make music, because you're never going to be original. That's why you're Melkor. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, these, these occasional riots, if you want to call them that, sometimes they do actually become, you know, riots here. Uh, but these protests and stuff, they do come across much more like LARPing. You know, there's a certain fetishization of, you know, the 1960s civil rights movements. Uh, there's, there is, it, it is sort of fetishistic, because, I mean, that's what LARPing is at its core, is its fetishization. It's, you know, fetishization of this anime video game world and it's it's very sexual too so the word fetishization you know takes on multiple forms and you can say oh well that's you're really minimalizing these serious political and social issues that people are protesting and i would say i'm not because i'm very well aware of what the issues are and what people believe they are standing up against. But I also question whether they are truly taking action or whether they are just enjoying the fact that they're out there holding a sign with a bunch of people who agree with them. I just question that. And that's what I contend with myself as well. So, you know, someone can say, oh, look at this guy. He's too cool for protests. He's, he's, uh, He's just minimizing all this shit that really matters and this real action that people are taking. But I think you should contend with that. If you are somebody who believes in protesting in any way, it doesn't necessarily have to be standing, you know, around with your uh, your political anime friends. It doesn't necessarily have to be that. It could be any anytime you feel like you are taking some kind of meaningful action. I think you should be just you should see yourself in a very harsh light. And that doesn't mean to the point of paralyzing yourself or stopping yourself from doing what you feel is right. But it should be something that you wrestle with or contend with. And that's what I try to do myself with when it comes to like when I feel like I'm taking an action or doing something or saying something that matters is I try to contend with that feeling. I try to go, am I just, is this just a smug gesture? 
Am I just LARPing? Uh, you know, you should question yourself at every stage. And when people do very horrible things in the name of action, and by that I mean violence of any kind, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter whether you're, you're some anarchist, you know, you know, punching somebody that you've labeled a Nazi, it doesn't matter if you are a school shooter, anytime you're committing an act of violence that isn't purely defensive, I think you should be deeply and that should be the deepest self-analysis you ever put yourself through. If you think it is okay on any level to participate in anything even resembling violence or to, or to throw violent words out there, I think that should be the most cutting self-analysis you ever do in your life. And even if you still ultimately want to do it, it should only come on the heels of the deepest, most brutal self-analysis. But I, unfortunately, I think violence often jumps ahead of that, which is why it happens. It jumps ahead of self-analysis. It jumps ahead of self-awareness. It is primitive. It is impulsive. It is emotional. And that's why these things play out. But it's also not a surprise to me that protests often do either provoke violence in people who disagree with the protest or why the protests themselves become violent. It's not a surprise to me because I think there is a lack of self-analysis going on. I think people are playing a role and they're not entirely aware of it either. And, you know, one way that's a very, because I mean, I think too that when I, when I think about this idea of taking action, I tend to get a little grandiose. I mean, here I am talking about Beowulf uh, and the, in, you know, riots for that matter, you know, these, these big, large events. But one way that I think you can take action or at least not, uh, one way that you can at least, you know, li one, well, let's go back to the, the idea of opportunity, how a hero is somebody who doesn't just boldly go out. You know, a hero is somebody who has been through a process of self-analysis and they're not somebody who just boldly does whatever they feel like, but it's somebody who has prepared themselves to take opportunity. They have taken responsibility. They have recognized their relationship to their situation and their surroundings, and they've opened themselves up to the opportunity for taking action. And... You know, here I am back with the hero example, uh, but let me think about this. Don't, uh, this isn't a, a, a pause, don't pause. Let me just think about this for a second. Oh, here we go. I think a simpler way to think of it, to get away from all the grandiosity, and maybe this will be another form, another branch of the same grandiosity, but I don't think so. One simple way to take action or to give yourself the opportunity to take action when it truly matters is to make sure that your behavior is consistent with your values. I think that is the first step, is to escape that inevitable paradox or hypocrisy. And, you know, I do like a certain amount of cognitive dissonance, as I've, I've said, and I feel like that's where new ideas come from, and that new idea could be the idea of yourself. You know, if you have two parts of you that are seemingly at odds, I don't think you should necessarily shut one down. 
because, uh, oh, oh, God, I can't believe that because of this, or I, I can't do that because I did this once. You know, I don't think you should, like, paralyze yourself, but, you know, I think you should be aware of certain paradoxes, and you should be trying to work through them in the same way that if you think you're taking action, you should be asking yourself, what is this really doing? What am I really doing? And, you know, making sure that your behavior, which is your actions, you know, if you strip all the grandiosity of heroes and all that shit out of it, you know, your act, your, your behavior is just your actions and your behavior is what you do all the time. It's what you do every day. And, you know, it seems simple. It's like, oh, you know, I believe this and I do what I want. You know, life is, you know, you just, I have these beliefs and, you know, but people don't really try to measure those up against each other nearly as often as they should. And I know this because I didn't do it for the longest time. I would have these opinions on things and I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even take a look at how my behavior actually matched my values because your behavior should always be a representation of your values. You're going to be imperfect. It's not going to be perfect, but your behavior and therefore your actions should always be a representation. There should always be more consistency between your behavior and your values than there is not. And a great example of this, and I'm not trying to, you know, call anyone out onto the carpet. I'm not trying to put a spotlight any on anybody. And fortunately and unfortunately, I know a number of people like this. This isn't even a composite. I'm, I'm thinking of, I can think of like five individuals off the top of my head, and I'm not going to point any fingers, but I know people who think, if you voted for Trump, you are the worst person in the world. I don't want anything to do with you. You you are a bad person, and you deserve to be on a lower level of humanity, at least as long as you are a Trump supporter. You know, you, you are not okay. You are a threat. You are dangerous, to use that word. Yet these same people, and again, this isn't a generalization. This isn't a composite. These are individuals I know who do this. Those same people drive drunk semi-regularly, and they know they do it, and they justify it, and I've seen them do it. I know they probably still do it. You know, maybe not, maybe in the last couple of years they've cleaned up their act, but I know people who have said, you know, Trump supporters, I've looked at Facebook and seen what they say. Trump supporters are garbage, Republicans are trash, and meanwhile, they drive drunk semi-regularly. Maybe even regularly. Some of them, yeah, for sure. I can think of one or two people who go out to the bars and drive themselves home every weekend. Maybe more than that. And that's just that's probably the most obvious example I can come up with. Here, this person is literally a danger to their community. They are driving a wrecking ball. And they are saying that they are using this abstract way to target you know, people who voted for this guy for a period of four years that may have some bad, that guy may do some bad things, is doing some bad things. I'm not even going to give my opinion on it. Uh, but here these people are like targeting people or pointing their finger at people. Meanwhile, their, their actual, their values are this. My values, I stand against everything that you stand against, and the fact that you have those values makes you worse than me. But meanwhile, I'm going to drive drunk. I'm going to drive drunk. You know, it's that sort of inconsistency, and that does something to the human soul, because deep down you know you're doing something wrong, and these people tend to have some kind of you know, persistent unhappiness in their lives, and they don't really realize what, and they tend to blame other people for it. And maybe they don't, you know, maybe I'm jumping ahead there. 
you know, these aren't bad people I'm talking about. These, in some cases, these are people I care about. But these are real people who do this uh, in this town and other towns. And the opposite is also true, where it's there's people who are very righteous. I mean, this isn't I, I shouldn't draw political lines. Just it's very easy for me to think of certain examples living in a, a liberal bubble town like the one I live in. But of course, you know, there are all kinds of places where guys who go to church on the weekends, who vote Republican and are angry at all the liberals, all the libs, you know, who do the same thing. They go to their tavern and they drive home drunk. And it's like, that's an easy example, driving drunk, because it is just such an obvious threat, an obvious danger to your immediate community, to everybody, to your neighbors, to everybody who is in your immediate environment which is easy for people to overlook. People often overlook their immediate environment because they're so f focused on Brexit. They're so focused on Hong Kong, Russia, you know, Washington, D.C., for that matter. You know, they're so focused on that that they don't think about, oh, yeah, I could kill my neighbor kid driving home from the bar. They don't, it doesn't really cross their mind. And, but it, I think it does cross their soul. And by cross, I mean, it crosses it all up, twists it all up. Uh, it turns it into a pretzel. Your soul is a pretzel. Um, and driving drunk is an easy example, but here's the crazy thing, too, is let's get away from alcohol and just say there's people who have a, a, a really heavy fucking lead foot, who drive like absolute maniacs, who talk about, you know, humanitarian causes wherever they go. There's people who, who will preach... Not just what they need, but what you need. Meanwhile, they have a lead foot. They're, they don't use their turn signal, which is the greatest crime of all for me, not using your turn signal. Just the, one of the most basic forms of disrespect you can show your immediate environment, which whether it be the highway or your neighborhood, doesn't matter where you are, you know, something like that. It's like, are you using your turn signal? Oh, oh, you think that, oh, you're mad at all these old British people for voting for Brexit, but you don't even use your turn signal? You, you tailgate people? You drive like a madman? Because I, I, I see reckless driving, sober reckless driving is worse in some ways than drunk driving. Not that I need to go into a traffic rant again, but I see that as worse than uh, drunk driving in some ways. Because at least when you're drunk, you're impaired. You're distorted in some way. You know, you're still making a choice. You're still responsible, very responsible. Uh, in, you're responsible within the veil of irresponsibility when you drive drunk. But you, you know, when you're sober and you're driving like a maniac and, and driving recklessly, putting people's lives at risk, you got no excuse at all. And I think that's just a clear example. You know, it's a clear example of how you could potentially affect other people. Meanwhile, you have these opinions that matter. You shared an article on Facebook. You got mad at your uncle at Thanksgiving because he voted for the guy you don't like. And I'm not saying you can't be mad about that. I'm not saying, but harmonize your values with your behavior. And you may actually do a lot more good than bad. You know, because if you're, you know, it's one thing to, to be contending with things. Contending with things is fine. Wrestling with things is fine. I don't, I think that's how we, that's how we become better people. And we might dip down, we might shoot up a little bit, but not shoot up heroin, but like we might, uh, 
we might climb the ladder a little bit. We might go down a couple rungs, whatever else. You know, that's that's when you're contending with something. And I think as long as you're, you know, as long as the momentum is moving forward, things are okay if you are contending with something. If you can achieve just some form of neutrality, things are okay. Neutrality is being okay. And I don't mean neutrality of opinion. I don't mean neutrality of action. Although that's a good uh, spinoff from this because, you know, a lot of people meditate these days. There's a lot of secular meditation in particular, which is interesting. I don't completely understand it. As someone who meditates, as you know, as you know, I wake up early, I read, and I meditate. And I want you to know about it. Uh, I want to talk to you about it. I want to talk to you about me. Um... But, uh, you know, with meditation, being someone who's, who is, you know, in the pro- a year and a half into meditation and does like to talk about it a bit, has been profoundly affected by the process and is contending with that. I mean, meditation is a great example of contending. Uh, but um, the idea of secular meditation is very foreign to me because what brought me to it, for example, is just certain experiences. Uh, I would call them spiritual experiences. I don't need to go into detail, but I would say what brought me to it is a realization that, oh, I'm experiencing certain things on occasion in the external world around me and in my interaction with that external world, sometimes as an observer, sometimes as a participant, and I'm having certain sensations, certain epiphanies, and they're not happening all the time, you know, but during periods they have. There have been little chunks of time where things seem especially ramped up, and there are times where nothing goes on, and, you know, that that kind of thing. But what ultimately led me to meditation was, you know, I feel like I'm getting, I'm having these, you know, experiences and these sensations in an external sense, but I was like, I think that that's leading me now is the time to go inward with it. And there's a reason why people have been doing that for eons. There's a reason why people have been going inward with those why people who have who've received similar prompts have gone inward with it. And so that that was what led me there. I would say even though I I don't follow any orthodox belief system and I kind of dabble here and there and that's something I have to contend with too and not subscribing to any one thing but also not wanting to be like a chaos magician, you know, because, uh, you know, I don't want to be anything. I, I'm just, I'm trying to figure it out. I'm contending with it. And whether that's better or worse, I can't possibly tell you. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, you know, what led me to meditation was certainly not a secular approach. It wasn't a follow your bliss sort of like thing. And I'm, and, you know, some people do it for that reason. Some people, do meditate. There, there are people who are atheists who meditate, and that's cool. That's interesting. I'm very interested in that, and I'm curious what they get out of it or what led them to it, because you can do it. Like, I understand how you can do that no matter what you believe in. You know, you don't have to be any one thing to, you know, take up a meditation practice, and there are a variety of practices. There are a variety of approaches to meditation, and I've, I've tried several, and I've just had to kind of figure it out on my own, but, uh, you know, as I've talked about before, it's like whenever I try to clear my own path, I often end up realizing, oh, well, I just, I'm just figuring out techniques that everybody else has already used, <laughs> you know, and, and that it would have been much easier if I just read this manual. Uh, but, uh, you know, we all, 
I feel like most people who meditate end up following a fairly similar process, at least from the alien view. If the aliens were looking down, they'd be like, all these people are doing the same thing. It doesn't matter what your mantra is. It doesn't matter what the object you're focusing on in your mind is. It doesn't matter. We're aliens. We see you all doing the same thing. Um, but the secular, the idea of secular meditation is interesting because it's like, kind of a follow your bliss idea. But to go back to the idea of action, a common, you know, people who meditate are taking an action. You are taking, it, you're, you're taking action through this almost inaction because you're sitting there. You're doing something that nobody does. I mean, throughout your entire life in our world today, it's like you, you never just sit there with your eyes closed or even if your eyes, even if it's an, an open eye meditation and you're focusing on one little object, you're letting everything in the room blur, it doesn't really matter. The idea of sitting there and doing nothing is one of the things we fear the most, boredom. That's like the epitome of boredom is sitting there and doing nothing. And God forbid you actually have to think while you're doing nothing. And the idea is to not think. And then there's other meditation things that are like, but you should think. You know, so it's there's a lot of contention. You know, there's a lot of contention. And you go back and forth. And sometimes you want to try to clear your mind. Sometimes you do want to feel blissful. Sometimes you do want to feel like you're dealing with uh, your pretzel soul. Sometimes you do want to feel like you're pulling apart your pretzel soul, trying to straighten it out. But what is straight? What is a straight soul? You know, there's there's a lot of you're dealing with a lot of stuff. Oh, I'm having I'm having little flickering visions that are almost like dreams, but I'm awake and it's so cool. And then you read some, you know, Buddhist scripture that's like, you know, don't don't get attached to the to the visions. You know, you know, my, you know what I mean? It's like there's always something, there's always a counterweight, and that's what's beautiful about it. That's why I I love something like meditation, is because you can never, even though it's all about like sitting in this position and getting comfortable and, and there's an element of relaxation and you do experience kind of this numb bliss and this luminosity, even though you do experience that. And I think a secular person might be pursuing it for those reasons, because it's like, oh, meditation just has all these benefits. Have you heard about the benefits of meditation? And it's like, meanwhile, I'm like, have you heard about my pretzel soul? You know, <laughs> uh, it must be nice to have a, uh, you know, have you heard about my Auntie Anne's Wetzel's baseball stadium shaped soul and dealing with that with my eyes closed? But, uh, but there's this idea that like you're taking some kind of action and, you know, I, I feel like the more secular mindset or the more, you know, the Western sort of spiritual approach, sort of new age approach to something like meditation is, is more in line with follow your bliss, achieve that sort of just, you know, I got my eyes closed and I'm sitting still, but can you see that subtle smile on my face? Because I feel great. I feel like that tends to be a part of it. And it's strange to me that thinking about an atheist meditating because, you know, it's like, well, you're, n oh, that, that luminosity that you experience even in a dark room and that, that flickering of a vision of something that doesn't seem to matter, but you can't help but be taken aback by it. It's just your neurons firing in this way, and that's all it is. You know, taking this sort of reductionist, uh, deconstructionist, scientific approach to something like meditation just seems extremely foreign, and I can't comment on it. I'm not criticizing it. I just, I can't quite wrap my brain around it. And I don't really want to. I wouldn't want to take that approach. It's like, well, if your neurons are just firing off, what is that? What's the bigger picture of that? 
yeah, you might be able to understand what processes are happening in the human brain when you're meditating. You might be able to get scientific about it. But what does that mean? You know, what does that explain? And I'm not saying there's some grand meaning behind meditation, but it, you do tap into a frequency because you, you will feel it when you're sitting there. You will, you'll think that you're not going to get there and you don't want to put too much pressure on yourself to get there. And getting there is always a little bit different. But you'll suddenly feel just like tuning a radio or something, except it's when you stop tuning it, you'll suddenly feel this shift. And sometimes it's the luminosity. Sometimes it's like that darkness you see when your eyes are closed. Sometimes it just kind of lightens up. And it's, it's a strange phenomenon. And I'm sure science has studied it. And I'm sure you could explain what your body is doing. But why is your body doing that? And why have people been doing that with their bodies for thousands of years to achieve some sort of, to, to take part in some sort of spiritual connection. You know, I, I just, I can't completely comprehend it. But anyway, people often feel like they're taking action. And in the same way that someone going to a protest thinks, like, I am taking action. I'm putting my values, I'm putting my, my the rubber to the road. And I'm going to be taking action with this sign that says, uh, he is bad. He's bad. You know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be taking action with that. Uh, people do get kind of caught in that with meditation where they're like, I'm taking action. I'm helping everybody by doing this. I'm helping everybody by, uh, by meditating once a day for a half hour, for 20 minutes with a timer on my phone. My timed 20-minute meditation. I'm helping people because I'm going to feel better. I'm following my bliss. And when I follow my bliss, I participate in the the connectedness of everybody. And when I'm feeling bliss, that means I'm more likely to pass that bliss on to other people. And, you know, have you heard about how I'm helping people by sitting in a dark room with my eyes closed? And it's like, well, it's weird how that form of taking action, doing something that we all associate with boredom, something that we fear in waiting rooms, it's weird how that is uh, it does feel like taking action. And it very much is. It's something you have to decide to do. And a lot of times, just like working out, you you don't want to do it. Like, there are days where I'm just like, I don't want to sit down and do nothing. You know, I'm thinking too much today. And then, and then it's like, that's the day where you do actually have some sort of breakthrough or whatever else. And, uh, and then the next day, you have to contend with that breakthrough. Because, you know, in Buddhism, for example, uh, they call it going to the movies or watching the light show when you do have a vision or when you do see some something, some sort of, when something seemingly, when something happens during meditation that's beyond your mundane existence and beyond your chain of conscious thought, it's very easy to get into that. And that's, you know, where people start talking about spiritual bypass and spiritual materialism. I mean, spiritual bypass is basically the idea of thinking that you're taking action by meditating. It's like, oh, by doing this, I don't have to do something else for people. I don't actually have to take action. Uh, and I question myself about that. I'm like, would I be better off, you know, actually like, you know, going to a protest? I don't know what I, what protest I would go to. Staging my own protest. Would I be better off doing that than just like doing the self-indulgent, you know, tapping into this spiritual frequency, going to the movies, going to the light show of meditation, you know, would I be better off? And it's like, I don't know, that's once again, something that you have to contend with. 
whenever you decide to do anything, whenever you decide to think anyway, it's something you have to contend with, is that idea of spiritual bypass. And that, you know, it kind of bleeds into spiritual materialism as well, where when I first started having those flickering glimpses, and it certainly doesn't happen every time, not even every other time necessarily, but like glimpses of dreamlike visions, and they could be of no value. Sometimes, occasionally, they're, they seem profound, but a lot of different practices will tell you to ignore those. And that's hard to do. It's, it's almost like ignoring a synchronicity or ignoring any kind of it's like ignoring good news almost. It's almost like, you know, when something good happens to you and like being like, well, don't think about it and don't tell anybody because the first thing you want to do is share the good news. It's almost like that. But I, I like that process. I like that idea of always having some kind of counterweight to keep you balanced. The idea of being like, well, no, don't put too much weight on that. Because when it first started happening, and I think those experiences remind you that you are doing something, that there is something happening. uh, Where, like, if if I hadn't had some of those experiences when I first started meditating, which were a complete surprise, I did not expect anything like that. I just, I honestly kind of thought, well, this is just a way to kind of like balance my mind. I didn't have any kind of expectation whatsoever, honestly. But when I did start to have some of those sorts of breakthroughs, they kept me going. It was like, oh, this is fucking weird and cool and all kinds of things. And I, I should keep doing it. I should keep doing it. I want to see these things. I had a vision of, of like a dog like taking a bone out of a, a, a cubby hole. What does it mean? I don't know. I want to keep seeing things like that. Uh, but, you know, it's it's those sorts of things. And when I first started experiencing those, what was my first impulse? Like, as soon as meditation was over, write it down. Write it down in a journal. Write down every vision, every, like, epiphany I had while meditating. And I, I mentioned on here probably a year ago, whenever it was I was doing this, that I tried doing a dream journal. And there's something to be said for dream work, for dream work's pictures. There's something to be said for Pixar Uh, But there's something to be said for, you know, thinking about your dreams and, you know, there's a a reason why these influential psychologists as well as shaman, as well as spiritual people have all, all these different, there's a reason why all these different uh, people, (laughs) people have placed an emphasis on dreams and interpreting dreams, but I've gotten away from that. I don't, I I don't write down my dreams. It just, it's just a chore that I don't want to do. And I, I've stopped also like writing down what happens during meditation because it does feel like I'm trying to attach, I'm trying to hold on to something that I don't need to hold on to. And that doesn't mean I will never do it again. Uh, but I think that's the idea of, you know, realizing that it's like I am taking some kind of action that is beneficial to me in some way and it might be beneficial to the world around me and it might help me look for opportunities, you know, because I think that's what it does help you do, this idea of mindfulness, which is a term that's been beaten into the ground, but this idea of mindfulness, I mean, that's what a hero is. When I say a hero has a relationship to everything, or even just anybody who is aware of what's going on, but going back to that idea of the hero as the ideal, uh, the hero is, is experiencing mindfulness when they recognize opportunities. The hero is very mindful. And you can't recognize opportunities without mindfulness because otherwise you're too distracted with the bullshit momentum that you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. 
So, you know, even just meditation as a process for achieving mindfulness, which seems to be the Western approach, along with the whole follow your bliss thing, uh, it's, you know, just achieving some level of mindfulness, some level of equanimity in, in the world, being aware of things as they are, whatever that is. <laughs> oh, you know, uh, it's, it's all about just understanding things just as they are. Well, what is that? Another thing to contend with. It's another, things as they are is another thing to contend with. Um, but, you know, not being attached to, you know, these things that are happening during meditation is, is another part of that. And not being, I don't know, just, just always questioning whether you are truly, whether the action you are taking, I don't know, let's get away from that and just go back to the mindfulness thing where it's just, you know, if nothing else, pretty much every form of meditation reinforces mindfulness. It strips away the momentum of your thoughts, both from your distant past as well as your your future. Because that's one of the things you're that's what you're dealing with when you're anxious is you're afraid of the future. You think you know what's going to happen, and you're scared. You know that's what anxiety is. That's what stress is, for that matter. I did that episode about the deity of stress. Uh, meditation is very helpful in stripping yourself from the deity of stress. Uh, but for me, you know, there is a spiritual relationship in that as well in meditation that I won't go into detail about, but it is a, ba a major part of it, and therefore I can't comment on what someone is going to get out of meditation who is purely secular, who is an atheist. And I think it's cool if an atheist, you know, I, I know I talk shit on atheists. It's fr it's a friendly shit talking, but I, I do talk shit on it. Uh, and if, if, if an atheist wants to meditate, I think that's very cool. You know, I but I I couldn't possibly comment on it, and if I knew somebody who did that, it'd be fun to compare notes. But I think it is important to remember to go back to action. That meditation itself isn't taking necessarily taking an action; it's giving you the opportunity. In the same way that the hero is someone not who is just taking action all the time, but who is prepared to take action when the opportunity presents itself. I would say that's the sort of role that meditation plays as well. Meditation makes you a hero. The cool thing about meditation is the second you sit down, you become a hero. Um, no, but meditation, in, in the same way that, you know, the hero is aware of opportunity when it presents itself, meditation helps prepare you to see the world in those terms. And I think that's why it lends itself so well to, you know, volunteer work. Not that I do that, but like, you know, there's a reason why it lends itself toward these cut and dry ways that you can go out and just help people. And why it does benefit, I uh, hit, hit the mic, hitting the mic. Uh, there's a reason why meditation does go hand in hand with a more positive outlook, I guess, would be a, an easier way to just wrap that all up. Whether it's saving lives or, you know, giving people soup, giving, being nicer to your mom, being nicer to your friends, you know, whatever it is. Not that I know anything about that. Um, you know, there's a reason why it does lend itself toward, you know, being a more well-balanced person. And uh, I don't know what to say about action because it's still something that I'm thinking about. There's a reason I started doing this episode this morning. It's because yesterday I spent the whole morning just thinking about, am I taking action? Am I taking the right actions? And then that led me to thinking, you know, well, I know that I've distanced myself from 
arenas of activity where I felt like I wasn't taking action. And a great example of that is the world of art and music, because people who make art and make music have been very critical of them lately, musicians in particular. And it's because musicians tend to feel, even if they pretend to be humble, whatever else, and some of them truly are humble, special people in that regard, but there's a lot of them who feel like they are doing something. They feel like they are offering this gift. And we know music, it, it helps. It's it's great to have a soundtrack to take action too, but it can also give you, it, it can also, uh, music can also give you an illusion. You know, music can also give you this backdrop. It can get you hyped up to, to take action. But, you know, there's, it's not a surprise that the Columbine guys were all hyped on music. They had their own personal soundtrack, too. So, you know, there's this idea that music, and, and I don't know why I brought that example up, but there's, there's a reason why music tends to be this, you know, backdrop toward doing anything in our world. Like, you can't work out without your hype music. You know, you can't, oh, I, I can't do this without music. I can't drive without music. And it's great to have that soundtrack. And I think there's a lot of music that does provide a a great backdrop toward taking good, positive action. But I think musicians, as I've explained recently, just tend to get caught up and, and feel like they are always doing something. This musician, uh, this, this machine kills fascists. Oh, does it? Woody Guthrie's machine? Oh, all those fascists just, you know. Oh, man, th- this machine killed Mussolini. This machine killed Melkor. This machine is Melkor. This machine kills, this, this Melkor kills Melkor. <laughs> That's something to contend with. If you want to contend with something, this Melkor kills Melkor. But it's very easy for artists to feel like they are actually doing something. And sometimes they might be. But I think that's, you know, one of the oldest tricks in the book is thinking that through pure creativity, you are taking action. And it was something I became very aware of being involved in these, you know, niche music genres, niche art worlds. And I was just like, I don't feel like this is doing anything. And all the conversations people are having revolve around like collecting things and uh, gear and, you know, just these presentations. And the lasting relationships I've made through things like art and music, at this point in my life at least, are, you know, mostly based on just talking. Like talking about that friend who I had nothing in common with musically, but, you know, has stayed a friend of mine over the years and really kind of held my feet to the fire without even trying to. Just in speaking his own truth and preaching what he needed, he kind of held my feet to the fire. And I'm grateful for that. But some other people too. And, you know, in different parts of the world, there's people I'm still in contact with. I have a friend in Sweden. I haven't talked to him in a little bit. But, you know, when we talk, even though we, what brought us together was one thing, it's like, you know, it's not about this world of, you know, to me, it's like record collectors are no different than, you know, art collectors. I mean, because that's what it is. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think that stuff is cool for a reason. There's a reason why I was attracted to that stuff, especially when I was younger. And it's not its not that I've, I've even outgrown it. It's just that it, it stopped really having an impact on me. And I started to notice the sort of conversations that were taking place. And I felt like they were the conversations of inaction or action toward goals that didn't matter to me. And the things that were masquerading as action were just LARPing. You know, and there's a reason why in the last episode I talked about how so many musicians are just LARPing. 
You know, you got to look a certain way. Oh, this guy's a badass because he's in a metal band. This guy's a badass because he plays rock and roll. Oh, I'm so scared of Jimmy Page because he's into the occult. Oh, Jimmy Page, the, the occult wizard. And he is a wizard. I don't, I'm not even a Led Zeppelin fan. And even I can admit Jimmy Page probably a wizard of some kind. Uh, but uh, there's all kinds of wizards, too. There's all kinds of wizards. And uh, I just think you should always question that, like what you're actually participating in and what you're actually doing and what ideas are actually being communicated and whether those ideas do facilitate taking some sort of action and whether leading up to that action, your values are consistent with your behavior and therefore your actions. Because that's the first step, and I'm still trying to deal with that. I know I have a tendency to talk like I'm, you know, some kind of expert or like I'm, you know, am, that I am a youth preacher or something to that effect. It's just kind of what I do here. But that is something that I know and, and that I am trying to do now. And it's only been recently that I feel like I've made any progress toward that end is making sure that my values are consistent with my behavior. And they'll influence each other. You know, one doesn't come before the other necessarily. Sometimes you might find that your behavior actually influences your values. You might be like, oh, you know, I've always been hesitant to act that way. And anytime that I feel like I've been pressured to act that way or be that way, it's felt just wrong. And then you realize what your values actually are based on your behavior. Because that's crazy. It's not just I have these opinions and I'm going to start acting a certain way, behaving a certain way that reflects those values. It might entirely be that you've always kind of gravitated towards certain behavior, and only later do you realize what your values are through understanding why you gravitated toward that behavior or against that behavior. And that's part of it. That's part of that process. That's part of that process of figuring out what action even is and what action you should take. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave this golden land to me and when the morning sun reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children